Welcome to Yo! Today. I'm Paul Pepys, director of the Oregon Humanities Center. My guest today is Samoan writer, editor, and art critic Lana, Lana Lopezi, an assistant professor in the Department of Indigenous, Race, and Ethnic Studies at the University of Oregon. She joined the faculty in fall 2022. Lopezi completed her doctorate in 2021 at Auckland University of Technology in New Zealand. Her research interests include Pacific Studies, Indigenous and Women of Color Feminisms, Contemporary Pacific Art, and Global Indigeneities. In addition to having written numerous articles and chapters, Lopezi is the author of two books, False Divides, How Do We Get to Know Each Other Again, and Bloody Woman Essays, which was longlisted for the Occam New Zealand Book Awards. She also has extensive editorial experience, having edited or co-edited several books, journals, special issues, and websites. Her edited volume, Pacific Arts Legacy Project, is forthcoming in 2023. In 2023, Lopezi also was awarded the New Zealand Order of Merit in recognition of her services to the arts. The award is one of the highest honors bestowed by the New Zealand government. Thanks, Lana, so much for coming on the show. It's great to have you with us. Thanks for having me. So first, tell us a little bit about your background. I have never uh, interviewed someone from New Zealand before. Well, <laughs> thanks for the space to talk today. Um, I am born in New Zealand, but my family come from a myriad of places. Um, my grandparents on my dad's side came from Samoa in the 1970s. And then on my mum's side, she's English and Canadian, and those migrations happened at various times. Um, yeah. <laughs> so your career path to the academy is an unusual one. So tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, so I um, am the daughter of teen parents who never had the chance to go to university. So me and my sister never had the option not to. And then I was about 17 and it was that time and I was like, oh my goodness, I'm gonna have to try and find something to do. So I went into art school um, where I, yeah, it was a great time, but a challenging time. And then I had my daughter in my fourth year of university. So I think I terrified everyone walking around with a big belly. Um, and then, you know, spent a few years mothering. And that's when I sort of started getting into arts journalism. So criticism and writing about art, really just writing about my friend's art that I you know, found really powerful and wanted to spend time thinking about. And as much as I loved that, I wanted to do something longer, like a kind of longer project. We do grad school a little different in New Zealand. It's um, almost exclusively independent research. So we don't really do taught masters. We're kind of researching on our own from day one. So I went into a master's program and started looking at Pacific people on the internet. Um, and then a scholarship opportunity came up for my PhD. Thought it sounded pretty cool and I basically never really left. <laughs> okay, so let's talk about your PhD thesis. Um, Moana Cosmopolitan Imaginaries Toward an emerging, emerging Theory of Moana Art. Tell us about the project of that. Yeah, basically uh, what I was interested in was the way in which a digital native generation of Pacific Islanders were thinking about their identity and their subjectivity. Um, that didn't really exist in the sort of literature yet, kind of too young to have made it into kind of books or, um, you know, we were sort of all in our 30s or slightly younger or maybe slightly older. Um, so I was looking at how Pacific Islanders were doing that through their art making um, and what their art making could kind of tell us about things that were otherwise unwritten or unspoken. Um, and so 
where I sort of landed with that was the language of diaspora in terms of these ideas of dispersion and dislocation and sort of maybe cultural turmoil that often comes up that wasn't really resonating with these artists whose work I was looking at. They had really complicated, multi-layered um, lives, but they weren't ones of dislocation or kind of discussed in this negative sense. So Moana cosmopolitanism then was a kind of experiment of what some other language might look like for these people who are very culturally rooted, but they're exhibiting all over the world, very comfortable in both these worlds, very comfortable in the contemporary art world and their cultural worlds. Um, so yeah, that's sort of where it ended up. And it involved me interviewing um, and working really closely with eight artists, um, sort of in and of Aotearoa is how I describe it, Aotearoa New Zealand. So they're from there, but they're also maybe living in other places or have sort of kind of moved on or um, there was one that was working in London at the time. And it was like through deep conversation and through deep kind of looking at their art that I was able to come up with this idea of Moana cosmopolitanism. So you, you've already told us that you, you, you've done all these different things and one of them is that you've been a curator. So tell us a little bit about your, what, what's, why, do you, why is curating an important thing to do and, and how do you approach that? Yeah, well I sort of started off coming from art school making art um, and I realized that I didn't have the same kind of passion for making as some of my colleagues did. Um, and so I was sort of looking at other ways of still engaging with ideas um, in an artistic sense. And curation is kind of the natural sort of progression, I suppose. It's also a way in which you can work with friends and sort of think through ideas um, in a professional, collegial, collaborative way. Uh, so that's sort of where curation came in. Um, one project that we worked on not too long ago, sort of pre-COVID, in our pre-COVID lives, that was really exciting, was um, a series of three exhibitions, one at the Institute of Modern Art in Brisbane, one at Artspace in New Zealand, and then one at the um, Vancouver Art Gallery. And we were a curatorium of five global Indigenous curators, is how we described ourselves, so from New Zealand, Australia, Canada, and America. And we were looking at what kind of similarities and differences there were in our Indigenous identities, but also what happened when we started talking to each other and sort of not letting the colonial state mediate our relationships. Um, yeah. So you also, as you said, were at the, when you first got out of art school, you were making art. So tell us a little bit about the art that you made. Yeah, I was really interested in um, dissemination. So in New Zealand, there are a lot of Pacific artists it's always, I, I kind of describe it as it's the one area in which we're not in the deficit. Mm -hmm. So we have very uh, harsh and real social realities mm -hmm. in New Zealand, but thriving in the artistic sense. So um, Venice Biennale, we just had our first Pacific Islander representative from New Zealand. So really great, you know. Um, and, but we don't have many Pacific audiences coming into galleries. Mm -hmm. So it's sort of, a very interesting tension there. So I was really interested in art that could travel, what happens when we mass produce things. Um, what I realized in retrospect is I was kind of starting a publishing career without realizing it. Mm. So can kind of almost trace that academic trajectory there. Mm. That's interesting. So I know um, that you, one of the things that you've tried to address in your work in the Pacific Arts Legacy Project has to do with the fact that there's all this art being made in the Pacific Rim um, 
but there's no history of it. So tell us about the Pacific Arts Legacy Project. Yeah, the Pacific Arts Legacy Project came about really in COVID um, because artists had two years or the foreseeable future's worth of work cancelled overnight in many instances. Um, folks weren't able to travel and so we had a whole bunch of artists grounded. Our lockdowns were very intense in New Zealand so um, it was kind of an opportunity working with our national arts funding body to make the use of make the most of people's time as they were there and it, there's a big kind of community uh, conversation about the lack of writing about Pacific Arts the kind of way in which there's been all this production but we don't exist in the canon and so it was a it was an opportunity to try and address that gap and what we were really interested in is I can come in as a scholar or an editor or we can get art historians but that's not really the perspective that we wanted to capture. We wanted the voices of the artists, which is an interesting tension from an academic point of view, mm -hmm. because what artists want to say about their work is not always what I would hope they write about. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, and so the project was about relinquishing some of that control. Um, it was also made for the online space. So it meant that we could be really free about it. And really what we did was give artists some money while they had time and say, write about something. Um, and the results were incredibly varied, um, but it was the first kind of really serious attempt to capture the story of Pacific Arts from the artist's perspective. So it starts as an as a online uh, project, but you're now uh, editing a volume based on it. So tell us a little bit about why you decided to do that and, and how did you select among all the stuff that's in the digital space for the printed version? Yeah, so it um, got picked up by Penguin Random House really quickly. They kind of saw the aspiration and vision for it, even before we really started publishing, mm. um, which is an interesting uh, gamble <laughs> on their behalf. Um, what it's turned into now is an edited volume that has over 120 contributors. Mm. And then I've written 12 chapters that kind of create like a narrative spine for it. So when I said yes to the digital project, I didn't realize I would be <laughs> um, where I am now. So it's been a lot of work to get it there. Um, the other component is that we have a lot of amazing imagery too. Mm -hmm. So sometimes an image can stand in for an entire essay mm -hmm. in some sense, especially when we're talking about the visual arts. So it um, has a very beautiful visual element. And we've also worked with a Tongan designer in New Zealand who's created a whole kind of typeface and design system for the book. So we're trying to uh, capture the innovation that has always existed within contemporary Pacific art throughout the entire project. And that is uh, looking like it's going to be um, published in October this year. Is it, is it massive, this book? It's pretty massive. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's pretty, pretty thick. <laughs> okay, um, so let's talk about your own books. Uh, the first one, False Divides, How Do We Get to Know Each Other Again? Tell us about that monograph. Yeah, so that... Um, that started because I was really interested in what was happening on Twitter. So this was kind of the pre-TikTok digital world. Mm -hmm. um, and what I was seeing was that a lot of Pacific people were connecting online, but they were also like exchanging ideas. A lot of the kind of ideas that we discuss in academia and in fields like Indigenous race and ethnic studies were being kind of boiled down to these like tweet-sized conversations. And I was really interested in that. And at the time, when I started thinking about it, I was on an artist residency in Taiwan. So I had no 
cultural community around me. Mm -hmm. And so this online space gained heightened importance. And then I was also seeing people like learn languages, exchange different kind of cultural practices, all in this online environment. The internet is of course a tool of militarization, which um, is still a very ongoing lived reality across the Pacific. So I was interested in how something like the online space could be a double-edged sword mm -hmm. in which there are amazing things happening, but it's also kind of, it's very infrastructure is quite violent. Um, and I also, it, it wasn't really being discussed seriously at this point. Mm -hmm. So, mm -hmm. you know, we often, it's really easy to bash Facebook or, you know, whatever it may be. Um, but I kind of wanted to give some serious attention to the people who were making use of these spaces. And it was really a, around this question of how do we get to know each other again? So the way in which the online space brings people together who are not only spread across a diaspora community and you know living on island, but also these international diasporas. So there's always these fights that happen with kind of the New Zealand Pacific diaspora, the US Pacific diaspora, and the Australian Pacific diaspora that have all of these shared qualities, but are also very unique hmm. in their context. And so, you know, just kind of giving some attention to, to what was happening. You say there's divisions among them. Yeah, could you tell us a little bit about what those are? What, what are these false divides that you are addressing? Yeah, I was interested in how um, the settler colonial states mm -hmm. that we kind of live in and, mm -hmm. and belong to um, mediate our relationships with each other. And so what does it mean when on the online space, we're kind of all just like pushed together. Mm -hmm. um, how do those relationships work or not work? And what are the discussions that we're, we're having? Um, and so the kind of question of how do we get to know each other again is not an easy one to answer. Mm -hmm. But what sits underneath that is also this idea that we once did know each other. And that over time, over centuries, those relationships have been broken. And so the ways in which we come to know each other are not ones that are of indigenous relational kind of ways of knowing, but they, you know, they have these other factors of mediation. Hmm. Really interesting. So your second book, Bloody Woman, is a collection of essays. First, tell us about the title. Yeah, I was, um, I had this, I had the idea for Bloody Woman for a really long time, or I suppose I had ideas that I thought were connected, but I didn't know how. And then I just kept having this feeling like I was getting told things or I'd pick up little signs and they were all just kind of scattered collections at that point. And then I was talking to a friend, I was like, I think I have this idea. It might be really strange. I feel like these bloody women are trying to tell me something. And then she looked at me and was like, that's your title. <laughs> but then of course it plays on the idea of bloody, which you know, the New Zealand kind of Commonwealth picks up on the English use of that term, which kind of stands in for the F word. So it kind of has this derogatory um, sense as well. So, you know, what it means to reclaim that and then also this connection to blood, which connects to the color red. Mm -hmm. So tell us a little bit about the, the significance of red in Samoan culture. Yeah, so all of the kind of highest um, material objects use the color red. So the very finest mats are often um, adorned with red feathers, which are very hard to get. Um, we see red, the color red in um, like high ranking necklaces or garlands that people wear. Uh, when we dance, we have these little red swirls on our cheeks. Um, so it's everywhere in the most kind of highest ranking sense, but no one had ever explained to me why that mm. was. Mm. And so a part of uh, my research was kind of digging into that. There's a really long um, 
Christian history in Samoa as well. So a lot of the indigenous practices are described as being or belonging to the time of darkness. Mm. And now we're in the time of light. But in those kind of practices from the time of darkness, the womb becomes really important. So there was a prepubescent girl who would lead warring men out because the, um, the potency of the womb was said to be so significant. There were different practices around hymens, around um, menstruation. And so I was kind of interested in that kind of, that red or the blood or the, um, the womb with the kind of red that I was seeing in material culture and kind of seeing if there was a, a way in which to connect these or if they are connected. And so Bloody Woman is kind of me working through my speculative ideas that these things are one and the same. So you just used the term speculative and that leads to my next question. So in your preface, you call it a work of speculative nonfiction. That's a new term for me. So why is it a work of speculative nonfiction? Yeah, I think, um, you know, I'm not an expert in any of these ideas. Mm -hmm. And there are a million different ways to interpret one culture or um, there are infinite ways to be a Samoan woman. Mm -hmm. And so I wanted to be really clear that my work is not an answer or it's not definitive. It's not uh, the truth for everyone. It's just me playing around with ideas in the same way that we do in many other fields. The problem is that when there are so few Samoan women working in this space or with access to publishing, um, things get held up in ways that they shouldn't be. Um, and so I didn't want I guess in a way it's kind of like a protection uh, for that, but also because we deserve to be able to play with ideas mm -hmm. and be speculative and kind of have a bit of fun with these things. So there's always a bit of fear when you work in like nonfiction form that mm -hmm. things will be taken more seriously than they should be. So. Mm. so you've already made clear that a crucial aspect of this project is embodiment and the, the, the woman's body. So say a little bit about why that was an important part for you. Yeah, so I was really interested in how various forms of power intersect uh, within Samoan womanhood, but specifically the easiest way for me to work through that was to see how that happens in my own body. Mm -hmm. So racial power, gendered power, class, um, all of these things, they're they're not just kind of concepts that exist out in the world, but we are always navigating them, every single person. And so it was really important for me to kind of dig deep into myself, to, um, to ask those questions, and also to be really honest with how these things work. Mm -hmm. um, because I think it, it's, I'm able to answer those questions or I suppose play around with ideas in a way that I wouldn't be otherwise. So you've made clear that you, part of the project of the book is to speak to and speak for other Samoan women, but also that it's an extremely personal book. It's very much about your experience. So say a little bit about the significance of it for you. I feel like the ideas were kind of bubbling away for a really long time. Um, I'm someone who I don't really know what I think until I've been able to like write through it or like it's just a mess in my head um, and I need to kind of go through the process of working through something. So I think in a personal sense, it's almost like selfish or narcissistic. Like I needed to do it for mm -hmm, me mm -hmm. um, and I needed to like get these ideas out. Um, but also I think with any kind of like work of art or publishing or anything, when you get it out, you give it away to your audiences and I'm now able to move on and kind of like turn to the next thing. Tell us a little bit about the reception. 
It's been positive. Um, I mean, I'm sure there are pockets of uh, very critical um, people. <laughs> um, and it's mostly because uh, the Samoan community is, generally speaking, very conservative. Um, and that is because missionization was very successful. Mm -hmm. um, and But we also have a very progressive community or like pockets of community as well. So I think f for people who have had lived experiences like mine, there was a lot of gratitude for actually just like vocalizing these things um, because it's not the dominant way in which we talk about someone womanhood. Say a little bit more about this. Um, you know, you mentioned that, that, that uh, Christianity was very successful, has been very successful there, but that there's a kind of tension between Christian ideas, Christian culture, and Samoan culture, indigenous culture. So say a little bit about how that, how you negotiate that uh, in your work. That yeah, work. I mean, it's a really interesting um, conversation because the Pacific is largely known as one of the kind of strongest Christian blocks in the world. Mm -hmm. um, but in a place like Samoa, indigenous practices, for example, tattooing, never ended. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So people had um, an amazing ability to marry both what was this new faith with these cultural practices that people found really important. Of course, there were some practices that were ended as sure, well. Sure. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think for me, it's about kind of finding my own way through that too. My dad defected from the kind of Samoan church himself, so I never really had to do that. Mm. But when I was a teenager, all the Samoan kids went to, went to church. So I was like, I'm gonna go to church. Realized it wasn't for me. And so I, I'm, I'm glad that I had that learning very early. Um, so for me, it's been very comfortable. I think it's up to other people if they feel comfortable with the way in which I negotiate that. So you have come to the University of Oregon from across the Pacific to be here. So what attracted you to the University of Oregon and Oregon? Yeah, it was, I, I was really in a moment where I wasn't sure if academia was for me or mm -hmm. I think everyone has this moment post PhD where mm -hmm. you just kind of step away. Um, and then I just saw a job that was going in a department called Indigenous Race and Ethnic Studies. I really loved that it was like a kind of coalitional mm -hmm. department, mm -hmm. um, even in the name, mm -hmm. um, that you had all of these things together. And then they were looking for someone to teach Pacific Islander studies um, with a specialization in indigenous feminisms. And it felt too on the nose not to apply. Mm -hmm. I had to know that my baby PhD from New Zealand could compete with you know, the UCs or wherever <laughs> they might be coming from. Um, and then it just kind of, I just kept coming through the next round and now I'm here. And how does it feel to live in Oregon after you've spent your life across the Pacific? Yeah, it's interesting, I think I feel comforted that I'm still on the coast, mm -hmm. um, that the Pacific Ocean is still very close, mm -hmm. even though I'm on the complete opposite side. Um, I'm really grateful actually to be in a Pacific community here that is so hungry to build. Mm -hmm. um, I think there's a lot of potential and possibilities, which is to say that there are also a lot of gaps and kind of ways in which the community has been underserved. But I think being able to be a professor to my Pacific Islander students is kind of all the reward for the journey. So let's talk about that. You're, as you say, you're a teacher in the university. So tell us about a course or two that you teach. Yeah, so this term I'm teaching um, Introduction to Pacific Islander Studies, which is really great. Um, it filled up really quickly and it's not just Pacific Islander students. So I feel like there's a real hunger to talk about the Pacific or learn about it. Um, people have no idea about nuclear testing or kind of the reach of uh, the US uh, 
histories of colonization and militarism. So we talk about that a lot, um, which is rewarding and challenging, I think. Mm -hmm. we, mm -hmm. we don't shy away from the tough stuff, but we also get to do fun things as well. And then the other course that I'm teaching this term is race, indigeneity and contemporary art, which obviously based on this conversation is kind of my area. So I'm really kind of just trying to test out what a contemporary art class would look like within a department like Indigenous Race and Ethnic Studies. And so we kind of have the main question, how are artists of colour and Indigenous artists thinking about race and indigeneity in their work? How's it going? It's going well. Yeah, that's another one. My students are super diverse from all across the university and all stages, but they seem really um, down for the cause. <laughs> Great. So, um, as I mentioned at the beginning, you are a recipient of the New Zealand Order of Merit. So the first person I've ever interviewed who it, it has that honor. How does it feel to be so highly honored by the government of New Zealand? Yeah, it's a strange one. Yeah. I had to read the email multiple times <laughs> to make sure no one was pranking me. Yeah, I can imagine. Um, I got a letter from our Dame Governor General, who is the New Zealand representative of the Crown, um, and from Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern. So my parents think that's really cool. <laughs> um, and I'm going back in, in April to receive my insignia, which is kind of describe it as like a wartime looking badge uh -huh. with a ribbon. Um, but really grateful for like my service to be acknowledged. And Is there, are there obligations that come with this honor? No, it's so, it's just a recognition of service um, and people get the recognition for various reasons. Um, so mine was for um, services to the arts. God, fascinating. So um, <laughs> you, you're, you know, you've told us all the stuff that you have done. Tell us about some of the stuff that you're doing now, some of the new projects, if you're willing. Yeah, I am looking forward to spending some time on, um, on my research coming forth. Um, I'm interested in extending my PhD ideas to kind of looking at um, Samoan subjectivity across the globe and how that's shifting um, and how that yeah, wh what that looks like uh, for kind of younger generations as well, so Gen Z and below, although I feel a bit old when I say that as a millennial. Um, <laughs> so that's kind of where, where that's going. And then I have this itch to write some more essays as well. Um, so are you still engaged in like curatorial work or the sort of non-academic side of what you've done in the past? I think it will always be there. It's both sort of curatorial and arts criticism and journalism as well, which is a, a different kind of curatorial yeah. or like arts advocacy work. Mm -hmm. um, because of course, there is this great amount of art production with very little people working in that sphere. So that's sort of a, a something that I feel like people will never let me let go of. <laughs> And are you, do you have any of those kinds of projects that you're doing now? There's lots of, so I'm doing lots of um, like essays for forthcoming exhibitions, um, most of which are happening in Australia actually. So uh, really interesting, they're kind of having their uh, awakening of all of the amazing Pacific artists that are over there. So writing, writing a bunch for them. Have you, ha have you gotten together with a bunch of artists from New Zealand, Australia, Hawaii? Is that a common thing or is that, you know, has that happened a lot? It, it actually is common. So the kind of like, in the way that we have these sort of 
uh, meetings and conferences in the academic sense. Mm -hmm. Those happen a lot in an artistic sense as well with exhibitions. So we have the um, Festival of Pacific Arts coming up next year in Honolulu, which has been cancelled and postponed for a really long time mm -hmm, with COVID. Mm -hmm. So I think we'll see that convergence happening and yeah. Okay. Well, we're just at the end of our time. So I want to thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us. And we're glad to have you at the University of Oregon. And I, uh, you know, your, your work is so fascinating. I hope it continues to go well for you. Thank you. Thanks for doing it. I've been speaking with Samoan writer, editor, and art critic Lana Lopesi, an assistant professor in the Department of Indigenous Race and Ethnic Studies at the University of Oregon. Thanks so much for watching. Mm -hmm.